Book Three, Chapter Eight of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight. Having now led the history of a great part of the personages in our drama up to the same point of time, namely the third morning after the defeat of the smugglers, we may as well turn to follow out the course of Sir Edward Digby on a day that was destined to be eventful to all the parties concerned. On arriving at Woodchurch he found a small body of dragoons ready mounted at the door of the little inn, and two saddled horses held waiting for their riders. Without ceremony he entered and went up at once to Leighton's room, where he found him booted and spurred to set out, with Mole the officer standing by him, looking on, while Sir Henry placed some papers in a writing-desk and locked them up. The young commander greeted his friend warmly, and then, turning to the officer of customs, said, "'If you will mount, Mr. Mole, I will be down with you directly.' And as soon as Mole, taking the hint, departed, he continued in a quick tone, but with a faint smile upon his countenance, "'I know your errand, Digby, before you tell it. Edith has been transferred to the good charge and guidance of Mr. Radford, but that has only prepared me to act more vigorously than ever.' My scruples on Sir Robert Croyland's account are at an end. Heaven and earth! Is it possible that a man can be so criminally weak as to give his child up, a sweet, gentle girl like that, to the charge of such a base, unprincipled scoundrel? Nay, nay, we must do Sir Robert justice, answered Digby. It was done without his consent, indeed against his will, and a more impudent and shameless piece of trickery was never practised. "'You must listen for one moment, Leighton, though you seem in haste.' And he proceeded to detail to him, as succinctly as possible, all that had occurred between Mr. Radford and Edith's father on the preceding evening, stating his authority and whence Zara had received her information. "'That somewhat alters the case, indeed,' answered Leighton. "'But I must not alter my conduct.' I am indeed in haste, Digby, for I hope, ere two or three hours are over, to send the young scoundrel, for whose sake all this is done, a prisoner to the jail. Mole has somehow got information of where he is, from undoubted authority, he says, and we are away to Iden Green in consequence. We shall get more information by the way, and I go with the party for a certain distance, in order to be at hand in case of need. But it is it does not do for me in my position, to take upon me the capture of half a dozen smugglers, the command of the party will rest with Cornet Joyce. We will deal with Mr. Radford, the father, afterwards, but in the meantime, Digby, as your information certainly gives a different view of the case from that which I had before taken, you will greatly oblige me if you can contrive to ride over to Mr. Croyland's and see if you can find Mr. Ward there. Beg him to let me have the directions he promised by four o'clock to-day, and if you do not find him, leave word to that effect with Mr. Croyland himself. "'You seem to place a great faith in Ward,' said Sir Edward Digby, shaking his head. "'I have cause. I have cause, Digby,' answered his friend. "'But I must go, lest this youth escape me again.' "'Well, God speed you, then,' replied Digby. "'I will go to Mr. Croyland at once, and contrive, I dare say, to get back to Harborne by breakfast-time. It is not above two or three miles round.' "'and I will go twenty at any time to serve you, Leighton.' "'Sir Edward Digby found good Mr. Zachary Croyland "'walking about in his garden "'in a state of irritation indescribable. "'He also was aware by this time "'of what had befallen his niece, "'and such was his indignation "'that he could scarcely find it in his heart 
to be even commonly civil to anyone. On Sir Edward Digby delivering his message, as he found that Mr. Ward was not there, the old gentleman burst forth, exclaiming, "'What have I to do with Ward, sir, or your friend either, sir? Your friend's a fool!' He might have walked out of that door with Edith Croyland in his hand, and that's no light prize, let me tell you, but he chose to be delicate and gentlemanly, and all that sort of stupidity, and you see what has become of it. And now, forsooth, he sends over to ask advice and directions from Ward. Well, I will tell the man if I see him, though heaven only knows whether that will be the case or not. "'Sir Henry Leighton seems to place great confidence in Mr. Ward,' replied Digby, "'which I trust may be justified.' Mr. Croydon looked at him sharply for a moment from under his cocked hat, and then exclaimed, "'Pish, you are a fool, young man. There, don't look so fierce. I've given over fighting for these twenty years, and besides, you wouldn't come to the duello with little Zara's uncle, would you?' <laughs> and he laughed immoderately, but splenetically enough at the same time. "'But I ought to have put my meaning as a question, not as a proposition,' he continued. "'Are you such a fool as not to know the difference between an odd man and a madman, an eccentric man and a lunatic? If so, you had better get away as fast as possible, for you and I are likely soon to fall out. I understand what you mean about Ward quite well.' "'but I can tell you that if you think Ward mad, "'I'm quite as mad as he is, "'only that his oddities lie all on the side of goodness and philanthropy, "'and mine now and then take a different course. "'But get you gone, get you gone. "'You are better than the rest of them, I believe. "'I do hope and trust you'll marry Zara, "'and then you'll plague each other's souls to my heart's content.' "'He held out his hand as he spoke, and Digby shook it, "'laughing good-humouredly. But, ere he had taken ten steps towards the door of the house, through which he had to pass before he could mount his horse, Mr. Croyland called after him, "'Digby! Digby! Sir Edward! Eldest son, I say! How could you be such a fool as not to run that fellow through the stomach when you had him at your feet? You see what a quantity of mischief has come of it? You are all fools together, you soldiers, I think. But it's true, a fool does as well as anything else to be shot at.' "'How's your shoulder? Better, I suppose.' "'I have not thought of it for the last two days,' replied Digby. "'Well, that will do,' said Mr. Croyland, "'cured by the first intention. "'There, you may go. I don't want you. "'Only pray tell my brother that I think him as great a rascal as old Radford. "'He'll know how much that means. "'One's a weak rascal, the other's a strong one. "'That's the only difference between them, "'and Robert may fit on which cap he likes best.' Digby did not think it necessary to stop to justify Sir Robert Croyland in his brother's opinion, but mounting his horse he rode back across the country towards Harborne as fast as he could go. He reached the house before the usual breakfast hour, but he found that everybody there had been an early riser as well as himself. The table was laid ready for breakfast, and Sir Robert Croyland was waiting in the drawing-room with some impatience in his looks. "'I think I am not too late, Sir Robert.' "'said Digby, taking out his watch and bowing with a smile "'to Zara and Mrs. Barbara. "'No, oh dear, no, my young friend,' replied the baronet. "'Only in such a house as this, breakfast is going on all the morning long, "'and I thought you would excuse me if I took mine a little earlier than usual, "'as I have got some way to go this morning.' 
This was said as they were entering the breakfast room, but Sir Edward Digby replied promptly, "'I must ask you to spare me five minutes before you go, Sir Robert, as I wish to speak with you for a short time.' His host looked uneasy, for he was in that nervous and agitated state of mind in which anything that is not clear and distinct seems terrible to the imagination, from the consciousness that many ill-defined calamities are hanging over us. He said, "'Certainly, certainly,' however in a polite tone but he swallowed his breakfast in haste and the young officer perceived that his host looked at every mouthful he took as if likely to procrastinate the meal zara's face too was anxious and thoughtful and consequently he hurried his own breakfast as fast as possible knowing that the signal to rise would be a relief to all parties if you will come into my little room sir edward said the master of the house as soon as he saw that his guest was ready "'I shall be very happy to hear what you have to say.' "'Sir Edward Digby followed in silence, "'and, to tell the truth, his heart beat a good deal, "'though it was not one to yield upon slight occasions. "'I will not detain you a moment, Sir Robert,' he said, "'when they had entered, and the door was shut, "'for what I have to say will be easily answered. "'I am sensible that yesterday my attention to your youngest daughter "'must have been remarked by you,' and indeed my manner altogether must have shown you and herself also that i feel differently towards her and other women i do not think it would be right to continue such conduct for one moment longer without your approbation of my suit and i can only further say that if you grant me your sanction i feel that i can love her deeply and well that i will try to make her happy to the best of my power and that my fortune is amply sufficient to maintain her in the station of life in which she has always moved, and to make such a settlement upon her as I trust will be satisfactory to you. I will not detain you to expatiate upon my feelings, but such is a soldier's straightforward declaration, and I trust you will countenance and approve of my addressing her. Sir Robert Croyland shook him warmly by the hand. My dear Sir Edward, he said, you are your father's own son, frank, candid, and honourable. He was one of the most gentlemanly and amiable men I ever knew, and it will give me heartfelt pleasure to see my dear child united to his son. But, indeed, I must deal with you as candidly. He hesitated for a moment or two, and then went on. Perhaps you think that circumstances here are more favourable than they really are. Things may come to your knowledge. Things may have to be related. Zara's fortune will be... Sir Edward Digby saw that Sir Robert Croyland was greatly embarrassed, and for an instant, for love is a very irritable sort of state, at least for the imagination, and he was getting over head and ears in love, notwithstanding all his good resolutions. For an instant, I say, he might think that Zara had been engaged before, and that Sir Robert was about to tell him that it was not the ever-coveted first freshness of the heart he was to possess in her love, even if it were gained entirely. But a moment's thought in regard to her father's situation, together with the baronet's last words, dispelled that unpleasant vision, and he replied eagerly, "'Oh, my dear sir, that can make no difference in my estimation. If I can obtain her full and entire love, no external circumstance whatsoever can at all affect my views. I only desire her hand.' "'No external circumstances whatsoever,' said sir robert croyland pausing on the words are you sure of your own firmness sir edward digby 
If her father were to tell you he is a ruined man, if he had many circumstances to relate which might make it painful to you to connect yourself with him, I do not say that it is so, but if it were... Rather an awkward position, thought Sir Edward Digby, but his mind was fully made up and he replied without hesitation. It would still make no difference in my eyes, Sir Robert. I trust that none of these terrible things are the case for your sake, but I should despise myself if, with enough of my own, I made fortune any ingredient in my considerations, or if I could suffer my love a being perfectly amiable in herself to be affected by the circumstances of her family. Sir Robert Croyland wrung his hand hard, and Digby felt that it was a sort of compact between them. "'I fear I must go,' said Zara's father, "'and therefore I cannot explain more. "'But it is absolutely necessary to tell you "'that all my unmortgaged property is entailed, "'and will go to my brother, "'that Edith's fortune is totally independent, "'and that Zara has but a tithe of what her sister has.' "'Still, I say, as I said before,' replied Digby, "'that nothing of that kind can make any difference to me, "'nor will I ever suffer any consideration "'not affecting your daughter personally, "'and I beg this may be clearly understood, "'to make any change in my views. "'If I can win her love, "'her entire, full, hearty love, "'with your sanction, she is mine. "'Have I that sanction, Sir Robert?' "'Fully, and from my heart,' replied Sir Robert Croyland, with the unwanted tears coursing over his cheeks. Go to her, my dear friend, go to her, and make what progress you may, with my best wishes. This is indeed a great happiness, a great relief. Thus saying, he followed Sir Edward Digby out of the room, and mounting a new horse which had been brought up from his bailiffs, he rode slowly and thoughtfully away. As he went, a faint hope, nay, it could hardly be called a hope, a vague, wild fancy of explaining his whole situation to Sir Edward Digby, and gaining the blessed relief of confidence and counsel, arose in Sir Robert Croyland's breast. Alas, what an unhappy state has been brought about by the long accumulation of sin and deceit which has gathered over human society, that no man can trust another fully, that we dare not confide our inmost thoughts to any, that there should be a fear, the necessity for a fear, of showing the unguarded heart to the near and dear, that every man should, according to the most accursed axiom of a corrupt world, live with his friend as if he were one day to be his enemy. O oh, truths and honour and sincerity, O oh, true Christianity, whither are ye gone? Timidity soon banished such thoughts from the breast of Sir Robert Croyland, though there was something in the whole demeanour of his daughter's lover which showed him that, if ever man was to be trusted, he might trust there, and had he known how deeply Digby was already acquainted with much that concerned him, he might perhaps have gone one step farther and told him all. As it was, he rode on, and Sue gave himself up to bitter thoughts again. In the meantime, Sir Edward Digby returned to Zara and Mrs. Barbara in the drawing-room, with so well satisfied a look that it was evident to both his conversation with Sir Robert had not referred to any unpleasant subject, and had not any unpleasant result. He excited the elder lady's surprise, however, and produced some slight agitation to the younger, by taking Zara by the hand, and in good set terms of almost formal courtesy, requesting a few minutes' private audience. Her varying colour and her hesitating look showed her lover that she apprehended something more unpleasant than he had to say, and he whispered as they went along towards the library, 
It is nothing. It is nothing but to tell you what I have done, and to arrange our plan of campaign. Zara looked up in his face with a glad smile, as if his words took some terror from her heart, and as soon as he was in the room, he let go her hand and turned the key in such a manner in the door that the keyhole could not serve the purpose of a perspective glass, even if it might that of an ear-trumpet. "'Forgive me, dear Zara,' he said, "'if I take care to secure our defences. Otherwise, as your good aunt is perfectly certain that I am about to fall on my knees and make my declaration, she might be seized with a desire to witness the scene, not at all aware that it has been performed already.' "'But not to say more,' he continued, "'on a subject on which you have kindly and frankly set a lover's heart at rest. "'Let me only tell you that your father has fully sanctioned my suit, "'which I know, after what you have said, will not be painful to you to hear.' "'I was sure he would,' answered Zara. "'Not that he entered into any of my aunt's castles in the air, "'or that he devised my schemes, Digby. "'But, doubtless, he wishes to see a fortuneless girl, well married.' and would have been content with a lover for her, who might not have suited herself quite so well. You see, I deal frankly with you, Digby, still, and will do so both now and hereafter, if you do not check me. Never, never will I, answered Sir Edward Digby. It was so you first commanded my esteem, even before my love, and so you will always keep it. Before your love, said Zara, in an unwontedly serious tone, your love is very young yet, Digby, and sometimes I can hardly believe all this to be real. Will it last, or will it vanish away like a dream, and leave me waking, alone and sorrowful? And yours for me, Zara, asked her lover, but then he added quickly, No, I will not put an unfair question, and every question is unfair that is already answered in one's own heart. Yours will, I trust, remain firm for me, so mine, I know, will for you, because we have seen each other under circumstances which have called forth the feelings and displayed fully all the inmost thoughts which years of ordinary intercourse might not develop. But now, dear Zara, let us speak of our demeanour to each other. It will perhaps give us greater advantage if you treat me, perhaps as a favoured but not yet an accepted lover. I will appear willingly as your humble slave and follower, if you will. Now and then, let me know in private that I am something dearer, and by keeping up the character with me, which has gained you your uncle's commendation as a fair coquette, you may, perhaps, reconcile Mrs. Barbara to many things, which her notions of propriety might interfere with, if they were done as between the betrothed. "'I fear I shall manage it but badly, Digby,' she answered. "'It was very easy to play the coquette before, when no deeper feelings were engaged, when I cared for no one, when all were indifferent to me.' It might be natural to me, then. But I do not think I could play the coquette with the man I loved. At all events, I should act the part but badly, and should fancy he was always laughing at me in his heart, and triumphing over poor Zara Croyland when he knew right well that he had the strings of the puppet in his hand. However, I will do my best, if you wish it. And I do believe, from knowing more of this house than you do, that your plan is a good one. The airs I have given myself and the freedom I have taken have been of service both to myself and Edith, to her in many ways, and to myself in keeping from me all serious addresses from men I could not love. Yours is the first proposal I have ever had, Digby, so do not let what my uncle has said make you believe that you have conquered a queen of hearts who has set all others at defiance. 
"'No gentleman was ever refused by a lady,' answered Digby, laying a strong emphasis on each noun substantive. "'So, then, you were quite sure before you said a word?' cried Zara, laughing. "'Well, that is as frank a confession as any of my own, and yet you might have been mistaken. For esteeming you as I did, and circumstanced as I was, I would have trusted you as much, Digby, if you had been merely a friend.' "'But you would not have shown me the deeper feelings of your heart "'upon other indifferent subjects,' replied her lover. "'Zara blushed and looked down, "'then suddenly changed the course of conversation, saying, "'But you have not told me what Leighton thought of all this, "'and what plans you have formed. "'What is to be done? "'Was he not deeply grieved and shocked?' "'Sir Edward Digby told her all that had passed, "'and then added, "'I intend now to send out my servant, Summers, to reconnoitre, he shall waylay Leighton on his return and bring me news of his success. If this youth be safely lodged in jail, his pretensions are at an end, at least for the present. But if he again escape, I think, ere noon to-morrow, I must interfere myself. I have now a better right to do so than I have hitherto had, and what I have heard from other quarters will enable me to speak boldly, even to your father, dear one, without committing either you or Edith.' Zara paused and thought, but all was still dark on every side, and she could extract no ray of light from the gloom. Digby did not fail, as how could a lover neglect, to try to lead her mind to pleasanter themes. And he did so in some degree. But we have been too long eavesdropping upon private intercourse, and we will do so no more. The rest of the day passed in that mingled light and shade, which has a finer interest than the mere broad sunshine, till the return of Sir Robert Croyland, when the deep sadness that overspread his countenance clouded the happiness of all the rest. Shortly after, Zara saw her lover's servant ride up the road, at considerable speed, and as it wanted but half an hour to dinner-time, Digby, who marked his coming also, retired to dress. When he returned to the drawing-room, there was a deeper and a sterner gloom upon his brow than the fair girl had ever seen but her father and aunt were both present, and no explanation could take place. After dinner, too, Sir Robert Croyland and his guest returned to the drawing-room together, and though the cloud was still upon Digby's countenance, and he was graver than he had ever before appeared, yet she whom he loved could gain no tidings. To her he was still all tenderness and attention, but Zara could not play the part she had undertaken, and often her eyes rested on his face with a mute, sad questioning, which made her aunt say to herself, "'Well, Zara is in love at last.' Thus passed a couple of hours, during which not above ten words were uttered by Sir Robert Croyland. At length lights were brought in, after they had been for some time necessary, and at the end of about ten minutes more, the sound of several horses coming at a quick pace was heard. The feet stopped at the great door, the bell rang, and voices sounded in the hall. The tones of one deep, clear and mellow, made both Zara and her father start, and in a minute after the butler entered. He was an old servant, saying in a somewhat embarrassed manner, "'Colonel Sir Henry Leighton, sir, wishes to speak with you immediately on business of importance.' "'Who? Who?' demanded Sir Robert. "'Sir Henry Leighton? Well, well, take him in somewhere.' He rose from his chair, but staggering perceptibly for a moment, then overcoming the emotion that he could not but feel, he steadied himself by the arm of his chair and left the room. 
Zara gazed at Digby, and he at her he loved. But this night Mrs. Barbara thought fit to sit where she was, and Digby, approaching Zara's seat, bent over her, whispering, "'Leighton has a terrible tale to tell, but not affecting Edith. She is safe. What more he seeks, I do not know.'" End of chapter 8